Enjoy the game by Lionel Burney. Chapter 10 After 91 Years. Watford were running down the clock, the only way they knew how, by attacking. The crowd had already spilled over the walls at both ends of the ground and thousands of fans were poised to invade the pitch in celebration. It was coming up to half-past nine on Tuesday, May the 4th, 1982. Watford led Wrexham by a single goal, scored by Ross Jenkins in the first half. After 91 years, the great majority of them unfulfilled struggle. They were a couple of minutes away from the first division. Elton John was on the phone from Draman in Norway. Still in his stage costume, he had cut the concert short a little early so he could make a call and listen to commentary of the last few minutes on Watford's hospital radio broadcast. News of the first goal had been passed to him between songs and he punched the air, explaining to the audience that his football team was on the cusp of making history. John Barnes, Wilf Rostrum and Ross Jenkins were toying with the Wrexham defence down in the corner between the Shrodell stand and the Vicarage Road terrace. Jenkins made a run into the penalty area and Rostrum played it into him. Controlling the ball with his right foot, Jenkins turned neatly and fired it low across the face of the goal with his left. The goalkeeper stooped to gather it and the ball hit his forearm and spun into the net. Two men. They'd done it. Watford had guaranteed promotion. From that moment on, and for the first time, they could call themselves a First Division club. A couple of minutes later, with the crowd around the pitch dancing on the spot, eager to get the party started, Steve Sherwood took a goal kick. It was a perfectly orchestrated moment. The referee blew the whistle while the ball was still in the air. As it fell to the earth, Watford's players and supporters stayed up in the sky, their emotions flying high. We weren't sure how to react when the crowd came on, says Jenkins, so we just ran to the dressing room. Someone tugged at Ian Bolton's shirt and by the time he reached the tunnel, it had been lifted up and over his head and taken away as the ultimate souvenir. Back in the dressing room, the champagne was uncorked and the celebrations began. The manager was soaked and then thrown in the bath. Then the players made their way up to the director's box to thank the fans. Later on, after they'd showered and changed, the players were in the boardroom. Elton was on the phone, asking to speak to them one by one. He was so delighted we'd got promotion, says Jerry Armstrong. He kept saying we'd made his dream come true. Then the manager took the phone. We knew we were promoted, and of course there was such a feeling of elation. But even now, all these years later... I cannot separate two events that happened that day, says Graham Taylor. Now a news report from John Humphreys. Britain has suffered its first major losses in the Falklands conflict. The destroyer Sheffield came under an Argentine missile attack. It later sank. All the crew who got out of the ship... It was the time of the Falklands War, and that was the day the HMS Sheffield had been hit. I remember someone telling me about it, and then being on the phone to Elton. It sounds strange but that has never gone out of my mind. Watford getting promotion to the First Division and being so excited, and the Sheffield being sunk in the Falklands. Taylor savoured the success 
and enjoyed the sight of all the happy faces, but couldn't help reflecting that it was still just a game. That night the players and the supporters celebrated together. Jan Lohmann, the Dutch midfielder, says, The whole team went to Bailey's, the nightclub in the town centre, and people were coming up to us, hugging us and buying us drinks. I saw all the fans jumping in the pond and thought they were crazy. It was a long night. We went back to the Ladbroke Hotel for some more drinks, and then they served us breakfast at about five in the morning. Ross Jenkins paused to think of some of those who had set out on the journey with them. A lot of very good people and very good players, people like Roger Jostin, had played a major part in the story. But they weren't there with us when we actually made it, he says. I hope they felt part of it. The Football League introduced a new rule for the start of the 1981-82 season. Negative tactics were in danger of gaining the upper hand and crowds were still falling, so the authorities adopted an idea proposed by Jimmy Hill to award three points for a win instead of two. They hoped it would encourage teams to attack and open up the play. This was good news for a team like Watford, who were programmed to play the last minute with the same positive attitude as the first. Taylor hated seeing his team settle for a draw, even away from home. No one mentioned the P-word, but confidence coursed through the Watford squad as the first match of the season approached. We had been on such a great run at the end of the previous season, we felt we could challenge, says Pat Rice, the captain. None of the other teams scared us, even the three that had come down from the first division. We felt the most important thing was to get a good start in the first half a dozen games, so we were near the top of the table. At St James's Park on the opening day, they got off to a flyer against Newcastle United. Nigel Callaghan scored with a fantastic volley that had even the Geordies of the Gallagate end applauding in admiration. As far as the Watford supporters were concerned, there was no finer goal scored all season. In the second half, Watford were hanging on as Newcastle pushed hard for an equaliser. With Jerry Armstrong and Malcolm Poskett playing in attack, Luther Blissett had been moved into midfield, as he sometimes was. Newcastle resorted to some dubious tactics, and Blissett was getting kicked all over the place. I retaliated, he says. I snapped and I did him, and I got sent off. That was the longest twenty minutes of my career. I sat in the dressing room listening to the crowd, thinking, please don't let them score, because my life will not be worth living. Watford held on, and Blissett got away with a fifty-pound fine, instead of an earful from the manager. Victory at Newcastle was followed by two deflating home results. The 2-0 defeat to Grimsby Town was notable more for a bizarre piece of refereeing. Watford had devised an elaborate free-kick routine that involved placing a decoy line of players in front of the opposition's defensive wall. The idea was to block the goalkeeper's view of the ball and keep him guessing. Would it be a cross? Would it be a shot? As the free-kick taker ran up to strike the ball, the decoy wall scattered, leaving the opposition bamboozled. That was the plan. Watford had used it with varying degrees of success towards the end of the previous season, but on this occasion the referee blew his whistle and awarded Grimsby a free kick, even though it was not against the rules. Watford then drew against Oldham Athletic. A win, a draw and a defeat from the first three games did not scream imminent glory. The turning point came at Stamford Bridge on September the 12th. John Barnes made his full debut and Ross Jenkins returned after his spell in the United States. Neither scored, but both were superb as Watford won 3-1. John gave us something to turn us from a good team that had finished mid-table 
and was on the up into one that could challenge for promotion, says Taylor. Without exaggerating his contribution or selling the others short, he did give us that added something. What a place to make your debut, says Luther Blissett. Talk about being thrown to the lions. Chelsea's shed end was a pretty unenlightened place. It may have been only a stone's throw from the tailored suits and bespoke shoes of the King's Road, but this was an altogether shallower gene pool, populated by an unpleasant minority of skinheads in bother boy boots. Football turned a deaf ear to the racist chanting and monkey noises in those days, and black players were expected to rise above it. Barnes's feet made the ugly element of Chelsea support choke on their vitriol that afternoon. Jenkins was happy to be back. He was approaching his thirtieth birthday and determined to force his way back into the team after his ankle injury and his time in Washington. I had the chance to go to America to keep playing over the summer because I needed games, he says, but I never saw it as a permanent thing. It may have been a transfer because of the rules, but I saw it as being like a loan. Watford sold Jenkins to the Washington diplomats for £7,500 in March 1981 and bought him back in early September for the same fee. At the time, there was no system in place to allow a football league club to loan a player to an American team. America was a very strange place to play football. It was like being in the Jetsons. I'd been put in this team with ten other people, and we were just trying to get some kind of understanding. You would get on a plane with them and take off and fly, for hours, over nothing much in particular, and then the plane would screech to a halt near some skyscrapers. You might be in Florida or San Jose or Canada. You got off the plane and took a bus to a great big stadium with no one in it, and you'd play on AstroTurf, or this crushed-up stuff like a clay tennis court, and then you'd get back on the plane and fly back to where you'd come from. When he first arrived in Washington, he stayed in a motel, and was kept indoors for hours after there was a lengthy lockdown following an assassination attempt on President Ronald Reagan nearby. Like I said, it was an experience. The victory over Chelsea started a run of nine wins in ten matches, the only defeat coming at Kenilworth Road. Luton had also started well, and they handed Watford a rather humbling 4-1 defeat. The Hatters took over at the top of the second division the following week and led for all but three days in March, when Watford took over briefly, before winning the championship. Luton's direct running enabled Taylor to remind his player what he wanted them to do. They won two penalties in five minutes because David Moss took on his defender near the byline and Brian Steen ran at the defence down the middle. That is a lesson for us, he said. Despite their good run, people were not exactly flooding through the turnstiles at Vicarage Road. A 3-0 win over Barnsley in early October put Watford in the top three, and yet only 10,000 supporters turned up for the next game against Orient. Both Elton and Taylor had stressed before the season began that the supporters needed to turn out in bigger numbers if the club was to become self-sufficient. Taylor was baffled. The team was in the top two, yet attendances were smaller than they had been in the lower divisions. Do we want to get into the first division? Do we want it badly enough? he asked. We have 10,000 fans who want it, but I hear it said that crowds are small because we are playing teams we met in Division 4. I don't want fans just to come down if the opposition is fashionable. I want people to come to see Watford. This is your team. Times were tough. Britain was suffering a deep recession and high unemployment, and football had a reputation for violence, foul language and racism, even though Watford had made great strides to eradicate all the ugly elements and worked hard to attract families. 
Before the Orient match, Taylor led the players on a lap of honour to greet the fans and rally support. He was willing to try anything because winning football matches simply wasn't pulling people in. Towards the end of the year, everyone was reminded what they were aiming at. The FA Cup third-round draw dangled the carrot right in front of Watford's noses. Manchester United were coming to town. The fans would be sure to turn out for this one. When the draw was made, United sat on top of the first division. It would be a great chance for Watford's players to see how they measured up. Watford's league form evaporated around the turn of the year. They took just three points from five matches between the end of November and mid-January. All three games scheduled for Christmas were postponed because of bad weather. The United Cup tie diverted everyone's attention. A couple of days before the game, Kenny Jackett went down in training. It was bad news. Jackett had injured his right knee badly and needed an operation. In the days before keyhole surgery, this meant removing the cartilage and a long recovery and rehabilitation. Jackett would be missed, but Taylor had someone ready to step in. Jan Lohmann was a 21-year-old Dutchman recommended to Watford by a former trainee called Paul Curlin, who had made a career playing in Holland and Belgium. Lohmann was an under-21 international, but he was barely getting a game for his club. Sporting Lokeren of the Belgian First Division because of the rule restricting the number of foreign players. Lokeren had seven foreigners on their books, but could pick only three. They had established stars, such as Grzegorz Lato and Vlodzimierz Lubanski, who had played for Poland in the World Cup, and Preben Elkia Larsen of Denmark. So Lohmann knew he had to move. Lohmann was happy to go, but Lokeren held his fate in their hands, they wanted a decent fee for him, and they refused to sell him to another Belgian club. He went on loan to NEC Nijmegen in Holland, but they couldn't afford what Lockeren were asking. In the days before the Jean-Marc Bosman case enabled players to move for free at the end of their contracts, Lohmann was stuck. Lockeren held his registration and would not relinquish it, but neither would they sell him cheaply, so Lohmann refused to sign a new contract, and Lockeren asked the Belgian Football Federation to suspend him. In September 1981, he spent a week on trial at Watford. In training, he played like a wind-up toy that never came to a halt. He went into every challenge, as if it was his last, and when they kicked him back, he got up and played on. And he had a left foot sweeter than the syrup on a Belgian waffle. Taylor liked the look of him, but wanted to see how he did in a match. Because he was suspended, he was unable to play even for Watford's reserves. It was a crazy situation, he says. It took a while to get things sorted out. Watford gave me a very small contract to start with because it was a gamble for them. Lohman moved in with Nigel Callahan and his parents in Garston and would get a lift with Callahan, a crazy driver, to training. You can imagine the stick he got being Dutch, says Ian Bolton. He had this funny little moustache a bit like Hitler and he used to play up to it. But what a player he was. He could run and run. Lohman scored on his debut for the reserves and got his chance for the first team against Charlton Athletic in early December, filling in for Barnes on the left. He scored after nine minutes. The Manchester United Cup match was on January the 2nd, so the players trained in the morning on New Year's Day. After they'd all gone home, Graham Taylor was left in his office, pondering the effect a football manager's job had on his family at Christmas. He picked up the phone and rang his staff and said, why don't we get all the wives together and go out for a meal? 
They went to the Alpine in Bushy Heath and ate and talked and laughed together. Football was the last thing on their minds. Watford hit United with everything they had. It was an uncomfortable experience from the moment their manager Ron Atkinson reached the edge of the pitch and realised it was a quagmire that might sink his expensive Italian shoes. He was faced with a choice. Tiptoe his way to the uncovered bench near the touchline or watch the whole game from the stand. He took one look at the grass, and you could tell he was thinking about it, but eventually he braced himself and took the first step, says Eddie Plumley. Taylor was determined not to let United settle. They had slipped from the top of the First Division, but had Frank Stapleton, Brian Robson, Ray Wilkins and Sammy McElroy in their side. The team talk before the game was very simple, says Bolton. The manager said, You recognise all the names, and you've read about them being great players, but don't assume they are great until you've played against them. If you give them too much respect, they will punish you, so get at them and force them to show you how good they are. If they're that good, and they beat us fine, but make them play at their best. Les Taylor had no intention of showing United too much respect. We'd go out into the corridor and bang on their dressing room door and shout, Come on then, we'll be waiting for you. I used to love all that, says Steve Sherwood. Les would shout, Let's go and pulverise this lot. I would think, But it's Manchester United. That would really spur me on. And all the lads were the same. They'd be so fired up it didn't matter who we were playing. Watford bombarded United. Ron Atkinson's caution worked against his team. We closed them down so quickly, says Keith Pritchett, who was playing at left-back. They didn't have a winger on my side, so I was able to push into midfield and keep the pressure on. When it came, Watford's goal was particularly satisfying for the manager. Les Taylor took a corner on the left and it was punched clear by the United goalkeeper Gary Bailey. Taylor picked the ball up on the corner of the penalty area and crossed it to Lohman at the far post. Lohman's header was parried, but he forced home the rebound, which bounced in off John Gidman. It was a training ground move, says Graham Taylor. I was so happy with that goal because we had worked on it and it meant the players were listening to us and working on the things we were telling them. We worked so hard on free kicks, corners and throw-ins because that's where the goals come. When we took a corner, we weren't just thinking about the delivery but also where the ball might fall if it was cleared. People talk about playing the percentages, but why not? You play the line and length in cricket. Les made the run to anticipate the clearance, and it came to him, and he was able to put the second cross in. It might have looked like a simple tap-in at the far post, but I was so satisfied because of the work that had gone into it. Ron Atkinson conceded that Watford had been far the better team. United centre-half Martin Buchan said to me that he'd never come under so much pressure in all his life, said Bolton, who replied, See you next year. Buchan was tremendously experienced and a very good defender, but we hit balls up to Luther, and Luther had him turning one way and the other, sprinting and sprinting. He had to turn and sprint, and then he'd find he was out of position and facing the wrong way. He just couldn't cope with it. Luther ran him into the ground. Ray Wilkins dished out a backhanded compliment. The high ball is not our style, he said, but we didn't get a kick when it was on the ground either. Scoring the goal that knocked Manchester United out of the cup made Lohman a star and earned him a new contract. Watford promised that if I did well they would improve my wages because I was very cheap for them when I arrived. Even with the pay rise, Lohman, who had cost £35,000 to sign, was a bargain. 
Watford were 5-0 up against Derby County in late January. Their promotion challenge was back on the rails. Keith Pritchett had established himself at left-back after seeing off Steve Harrison. If there was ever a turning point, this was it, says Pritchett. I just had the ball, and I turned to the left, and my studs caught in the turf, and money gave way. Pritchett had to go off. Watford won 6-1, but were without a left-back. Three days later, Mick Henderson, usually a right-back, filled in against Rotherham United. Kenny Jackett was still injured, and Neil Price, the reserve team left-back, was also out. There was a major gap in the team, but as it turned out, the solution was right under Taylor's nose. Wilf Rostron had lost his place on the left wing to John Barnes and had been on the transfer list the previous season. He'd even been playing as a centre-forward for the reserves. History was repeating himself. Although still useful because of his versatility and the enthusiasm with which he tackled any job given to him, his was not among the first on the team sheet. He had become a luxury Watford could not afford, and with his contract close to expiring, it looked like he had one foot out of the door. I've been watching Wilf in training, and it occurred to me that he seemed to be so much happier with the ball in front of him, says Taylor. Playing out wide or in midfield, the ball can be anywhere, including behind you, but at full-back you have the whole game in front of you. In training I watched him, and when the play was ahead of him, he could see things and anticipate, and I felt he was at his best. Two days before a home game against Chelsea in early February, Taylor rang Rostron at home. How about playing left-back? Sure, no problem, he replied. Wilf was a great pro, says Taylor. You could write on the notice board, report at 3am for a 2,000-mile drive to the game, and Wilf would be there and he wouldn't say a word. He would do whatever he was asked. The following morning, Taylor took Rostron to one side. He put me in the left-back position and started tick me on with the ball, says Rostron. To be honest, he was pretty easy to master. Then he brought the youth team's right winger across and he started taking me on. Gradually he increased the standard of player he brought over to take me on. And then he said, That's it then. You're playing left-back tomorrow. Watford beat Chelsea 1-0. Rostron, who was up against their winger, Clive Walker, was voted man of the match. He never looked back. With Watford on course for promotion, the national press began to pay more attention. Fleet Street loved to splash a cup giant killing across the back pages every now and then, but the thought of Watford joining the elite did not delight everyone. Those journalists who saw themselves as the game's moral guardians took a trip down to Vicarage Road to see what all the fuss was about, and most went away with their noses in the air. They described Watford's style as long ball, route one, up and under or kick and rush, all pejorative terms that did not take into account the skill and application required to play such an attacking game. Most of them decided Watford did not have the table manners for the First Division and were confident that the Lords and Masters would quickly kick them back below stairs. Top of the list of critics was the Queen's Park Rangers manager, Terry Venables. QPR were thumped twice at Vicarage Road that season, 4-1 in the League Cup and 4-0 in the League, but that did not persuade Venables to keep his mouth shut. He said Watford's long ball would set football back 50 years. Taylor felt QPR's sideways passing and reliance on the offside trap sent people to sleep. QPR's tactics bore the pants off people, he said. No wonder people are turning their backs on football. Venables said Watford were little more than a hit-and-hope side, 
and that supporters did not want to see football reduced to a game of pinball. Taylor said, They may as well do away with goalkeepers if everyone played like QPR. Taylor and Venables had very different ideas about how the game should be played, and the bickering went on. At the start of the season, QPR had installed an artificial surface at Loftus Road. I called it a Sabutio pitch, and he called Vicarage Road's pitch a hill, says Taylor. Venables had a powerful ally in the press, the Daily Mail journalist Jeff Powell, who, along with Brian Glanville, was most critical of Taylor. Knocking Watford was becoming fashionable, and few people were willing to be supportive in public. The former England and Wolves captain Billy Wright, who had been part of their title-winning team in the 1950s, had some words of encouragement when he dropped in to see the team. Wright was working as a consultant for a children's television series called Murphy's Mob, which was being filmed at Vicarage Road. He told us there was nothing wrong with being direct, says Pritchett. He said that if we were being criticised, it was because we had people worried. Watford were never out of the top three from October onwards, and even took top spot from Luton, albeit only for three days, after beating Bolton 3-0 at the end of March. Watford had hit the top of the second division for the first time in their history, by dismantling Bolton Wanderers, and yet the attendance was under 13,000. Taylor again questioned the town's commitment to the football club, comments which provoked angry letters to the Watford Observer from some of the supporters who were turning up. With the sun shining and the promotion charge reaching its crucial phase, Taylor had hoped for a crowd of more than 20,000. Recognising his comments had gone down the wrong way, he walked out onto the pitch before the match against Crystal Palace on Good Friday holding a placard above his head. It said, I'm sorry. After hitting the summit, Watford stalled, and some of the supporters began to fret about getting over the line. Perhaps it was because the prize at stake was so large. In early April they lost at Cardiff, scrambled a draw at home to Palace, and were held on the plastic at QPR. They were second in the table, eight points clear of Rotherham, who were in fourth place, but couldn't help looking over their shoulders. Nigel Callahan says, We weren't thinking about promotion, we were just trying to win every game. But when we did finally do it against Wrexham, we took a deep breath and realised, yeah, we've done it. So I guess it was playing on everyone's mind. For the captain, Pat Rice, it suddenly felt like there was something to lose. He may have had 16 years at Arsenal, but this was an unfamiliar situation for him. The challenge was in front of us, he says. You're confident, but you're also scared. I played for Northern Ireland with George Best, and he'd be still sat there in his clothes ten minutes before kick-off, and you'd say, George, we're going out there in a minute. He'd quickly get changed, touch his toes, and be the best on the pitch. Whereas I had that little bit of fear. Will I play OK? Will we win today? Pat asked to come and see me on my own, around about April time, says Taylor. He said he was a bit concerned the players were losing a bit of confidence in themselves. I realised afterwards that it wasn't the players, it was Pat. He needed a little bit of reassurance because he was in a strange position. He was so used to winning things. He'd never been out of the top league before, and here he was worrying that we might not make it. That told me just how much it meant to him to get back there. Whatever he had thought when he joined Watford, he was absolutely determined to be successful, and the idea of not doing what we had set out to do worried him. To break the tension, Taylor planned a trip. He told the players they were having a little break. He didn't tell them 
where they were heading. Just a few days away, he said, and bring your passports. For days the players speculated where they might be going. They even ran a book. Some said they'd be going to Cyprus. Others thought Malta might be nice. They got on the coach and passed the turning for Heathrow and headed south, towards Portsmouth. The players were guessing where they might end up. Some feared it wasn't going to be a relaxing break at all, but one of the manager's boot camps. Then they reached the port. Signs pointed to the Channel Island ferries, one way and the Isle of Wight the other. The coach driver took them round the roundabout twice, keeping the players guessing, before they finally settled on the Isle of Wight. A couple of Watford fans had a hotel in Ventnor and had offered to put the team up for a few days. It gave the players something else to talk about other than the league table, said Taylor. In the end, it was relatively comfortable. At the end of April, second-placed Watford met third-placed Sheffield Wednesday and won 4-0. Then they won 3-0 at Selhurst Park against Crystal Palace. The gap to fourth place was now 11 points. Even if they ran out of gas now, Watford had enough momentum to make it, surely. Jerry Armstrong had spent a lot of the season on the bench, so much that the other players nicknamed him the judge, but Taylor used him as a substitute to great effect. Armstrong had been called up to play for Northern Ireland against Scotland the day after Watford's trip to Palace. Taylor said he couldn't go. I'd been injured and lost my place, and Graham said that Ross and Luther had been doing so well I would have to fight my way in, says Armstrong. I had made thirty-five consecutive appearances for Northern Ireland, but he wanted me to play against Palace. I made one and scored one, and afterwards Graham told me I could join up with Northern Ireland. He said he hadn't told me before the game in case I held something back. Looking back, I realised that Graham knew how to get the best out of me for the team, even though as a player you want to be in the side all the time. Because of their superior goal difference, a draw against Wrexham would have been enough to guarantee automatic promotion. It was somehow fitting that Ross Jenkins, a man who had been with the team in the fourth division days, scored both the goals to take the club into the top flight for the first time. Two days later, Watford's juniors won the FA Youth Cup. They had beaten Manchester United 3-2 at Old Trafford in the first leg. Clayton Blackmore hit the bar for United in the last minute, although Nigel Gibbs points out that he hit the bar at the Stretford end as well. The second leg was a superb game. John Barnes came into the team, but the rest were a group of players who had been together since they were 14. Michael Potts, Neil Williams, Neil Price, Francis Cassidy, Colin Hull, Paul Franklin, Worrell Sterling, Ian Richardson, Jimmy Gilligan and David Johnson. Some of them went on to play an even bigger part in the Watford story. Manchester United strikers that night were Mark Hughes. At one point we could have signed him for 50 grand, says Tom Wally, and Norman Whiteside, who went on to play for Northern Ireland in the World Cup later that summer. United led 3-2 at the end of 90 minutes, to force extra time. After extra time, Watford had levelled the match 4-4, to win 7-6 on aggregate. It was a pulsating evening's football and demonstrated that the Watford way ran right through the club. The first team still had a few league games to play. Watford beat Leicester 3-1 in their final home league game. I saw a journalist from the evening paper in Leicester after the game, says Steve Sims. He always said to me, Why did you go to Watford? You could have gone to a bigger club. That day I said to him, This is why I went to Watford. 
A few days before the last match of the league season, Watford played a friendly against Lohman's old club, Sporting Lokeren, at Vicarage Road. It was agreed as part of the transfer deal. Watford beat Lokeren, who had reached the third round of the UEFA Cup earlier in the season, 2-1. Lubanski said to Lohman afterwards, If you can play with four forwards and go one against one at the back, you must be some side. The final game was a 3-2 defeat against Derby County. Our discipline wasn't as good as it should have been, Taylor said euphemistically, but it was one of the few days I let it slide. I gave them an easy ride afterwards, even if I shouldn't have done. Watford flew straight off on a tour of Australia, New Zealand and Malaysia, leaving the queue for season tickets stretching round the ground and knowing that Liverpool, Arsenal, Manchester United and the rest awaited on their return. The ten-year plan sketched out by Elton John and Graham Taylor in 1977 had taken five. Watford were a first division club. End of chapter 10 Next time, we meet Graham Taylor's backroom team who embrace the gaffer's inimitable style.